I think everyone who goes to a law school, and especially an elite law school, should be much more open about and forced to face the fact that centrally their institutions are about producing elites. Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we're discussing an article titled, Law Schools Are Bad for Democracy. The article was written by Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale, who we speak with in the first half of the episode. On the second half of the show, we speak with Yuval Levin, a political analyst who responded to Moyne's article in the National Review. We're talking to Samuel Moyne, professor of jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. To start off, could you give a brief overview of the article for our listeners? Well, the article was written in in the midst of a controversy at Yale Law School, where I teach, um, in in the aftermath of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. Uh, And uh, I wanted to make an argument that was sort of different than the ones that were, I thought, most popular about what was wrong with or at Yale Law School and perhaps elite law schools and perhaps all law schools. Uh, So basically, I I tried to argue that we should focus on the fact that law schools or elite law schools are are producing uh, the ruling class in this country and and to, to a significant extent beyond this country. And there's a big debate always, but especially right now in view of so-called populism about whether, you know, elites are ruling well. Uh, and uh, that ought to be the main question for anyone interested in the social function of law schools and various things that go on there. In your view, do you think that the best way to have a democracy is deferring to what the people think, or should we put confidence in expertise? Well, that's a a huge question. I'd say, you know, since the beginning of political theory, Plato, uh, there's been a skepticism about popular rule. Uh, And yet, in the end, modern politics is about empowering the people uh, first on the grounds that uh, elites turn out regularly to be self-serving to to advance their own interests, not the general interests. Um, But also, second, because if you're going to say you're having a democracy, even a liberal democracy, it means that legitimacy sooner or later has to come from ordinary people. And so it's not that there's no place for expertise and I'm not against law schools. Um, but the, the question is how do we control the risk that these elite finishing schools, especially, um, become breeding grounds for elites to serve their own and not everyone. Could you talk a little bit about what some concrete solutions that you suggest in the article could be for law schools to inculcate better motives or better outcomes for sending their graduates into the world where they do have so much elite power. So so first off, I, I just want to make clear, I think I say so in the article, that, that the core function of law schools from time immemorial is to train practicing lawyers who are engaged in, let's say, ordinary lawyering 
you know, hired by clients to engage in private dispute resolution, or they work for the government, or they engage in public defense. Um, and that's all great. And we need practicing lawyers. We all, you know, need wills and we have contracts that, you know, require a lot of lawyering and nothing, nothing exactly wrong with that. Although we have to think about all the contents of these various legal domains like contract law or, you know, estates and trusts and so forth. The main, the main argument is, is though that I think, um, we, we could pay a lot more attention as elites in law schools about whether the law that we're teaching and learning um, is doing a good job at advancing justice. Um, in particular, whether it is helping reproduce elite rule or whether it's bringing more and more people into the elite. So just as a concrete example, we're living in, in, in the United States in the midst of an inequality crisis where the rich are diverging ever more from the rest. And that's a legally produced outcome. Um, it's not something that what most people think of as like social justice work, like working in a clinic during law school or becoming a public defender after um, or a human rights activist is doing anything about. Uh, so, um, and yet a lot of people are angry about, you know, in, in ongoing elite rule. So as, you know, the recent election of the president shows. So my sense is that we could orient law schools much more to um, unmask the way that the law is serving a few, including those who are graduating from these great law schools like yours and mine. Do you think that students in law school are not made aware of the way that inequality is perpetuated in the current legal system? Uh, no. I mean, is it is it a major theme of contracts uh, that uh, contract law in various forms can have these extraordinary distributional consequences or explained in um, trusts and estates for those who take it that there was a big change in, um, you know, how inequality was constrained for a few decades in the middle of the 20th century. And then rule changes like immunizing, you know, it, it, you know, wealth transfer to one's descendants from taxation uh, helped launch this inequality boom or take antitrust. Um, there are debates in the field about whether we should have significant antitrust enforcement, but there's not a lot of teaching about how it might relate to uh, the stagnation of the middle class, just as, just as examples. So, and that's only one problem, of course. I will say that clearly there's lots of attention to um, some forms of, of racial inequality, notably in the criminal justice context. And I believe that that's a central theme in lots of criminal law classes. So that, that sounds like one solution might be curricular focus. Correct. I think everyone who goes to a law school, and especially an elite law school, should be much more open about and forced to face the fact that centrally their institutions are about producing elites. And then there's a question of whether 
um, they can counteract this effect in some ways. And I'm focused on kind of intellectual ways, but there might be other approaches that focus more on what what trained lawyers do immediately after law school, as an example. But surely there's a place uh, for even more attention to um, what how exactly we live with ourselves if we're involved in such an institution, whether and to what extent the law is serving the majority or um, whether we need to figure out ways of, of telling the truth about it, including some of these major actors in the legal landscape, like judges, on whom I think a lot of attention is uh, focused in law schools, but mainly as like heroic agents of justice, which doesn't, I think, fit reality. The article does go into some depth about the kind of harm that focusing on the federal judiciary has on what students feel the best way to achieve social reform is. Um, So what would you suggest instead of the marginal legal change from within the system? How should law students be pursuing social change in a more effective way? Well, so in the first place, just to come back to you know, the the point about um, judges, I, I do think it's very significant that to this day, the, the first year or 1L curriculum um, is, is mostly still about the common law and oriented towards the inculcation of the view that there are these wise judges who achieve right answers. Um, and if that turns out to be false and we shouldn't look to judges for progressive rule change, um, then maybe we need to orient the curriculum much more towards uh, legislation and debates about the content of legislation. Now, that's going to involve a huge change in the way we think about the 1L curriculum and really the curriculum in general. But um, the 1L curriculum is very much admired in the past and in a fetish of this idea about um, judicially achieve progress. But I, I think more generally, your, your, your question is about what, what law students can do. Well, I think, um, you know, the article basically says that, of course, everyone's on their own and working out like how they deal with the morality of their role. So if you enter, you've chosen to enter a finishing school for elites, you've gone to Chicago instead of Arkansas, if those were your choices, or Yale instead of Columbia, or whatever, um, you, you've made a conscious choice relative to some set of rankings to advance yourself, and that's totally fine because we're all constantly and you know uh, uh, you know advancing ourselves in life. Um, but then you know there's so much talk about social justice in law schools, notably in the clinical revolution where as they're biding their time before the big bucks roll in a lot of students you know spend a term or a year or even multiple years in clinics i'm not convinced that um that allows much more than a lot of rationalizing by law students um and even to the extent law students are are experimenting with like future careers, like maybe they'll end up public defendant defenders or cause lawyers. Um, it's not totally clear how much difference clinical work makes relative to kind of thinking about 
what kinds of rules a, a, a legal system that serve the majority ought to have. Um, and so what, what that would mean is I think actually more classes, fewer clinics, um, and different kinds of classes. So I guess I'd like to focus on how do we come up with those kinds of rules that we think the legal system should have. Um, you know, one, one idea that I guess we started with was kind of looking to the people and letting the, the people's views lead. And I guess I would just ask kind of what we can do if we're worried that the people's views will lead in a direction that we really don't want to go. Yeah, totally. And again, back to Plato, people think that people make mistakes, uh, and they do. Um, now, are, are they an irrational mob? I think that's a different, a different conclusion um, that I wouldn't favor. Um, so I would, I would start with the premise that as far as I can tell, going all the way back in history, the problem is the tyranny of the minority. Uh, and it's, it's not, it doesn't follow that the tyranny of the majority is not a real risk, but, um, it's, it's not the main risk. Uh, and so we need more democracy, but in, in two senses, we could focus on process. Like we should want the people to choose their own rules, whatever they are, or their own leaders, whoever they are. But we can also look at outcomes and say, do the rules, because obviously legislation is supposedly democratic even now, do the rules favor the interests of the majority as far as we could guess at what they are? Um, and there the answer is no. Uh, so if we look out and, and conclude that whatever rules we have, private and public law, are advancing a few people and not the vast majority, even if they were chosen through a supposedly democratic process, they may not be substantively democratic. And for that matter, it's actually hard to understand why a majority of people would tr choose rules that serve a, you know, an, an elite. Uh, and so it, if that's the problem, and as I see it, that is the problem, you start to get into some exciting, but for some disturbing territory where we say we need more democracy. But one of the big problems is that people are confused uh, about what their interests are and, and what rules are likely to advance them. One other suggestion that Yuval Levin has put forward in response to your article, I think as a way to deal with the elite brandishing that law schools buy into and are focused on, is by imposing a strong professional code, stressing kind of service to, I guess, clients or other people over just prestige and raw intellect. So I guess I was wondering your, your thoughts on that. Well... I really liked his response. Uh, it it, it kind of, you know, was very, it, although from the opposite end of the political spectrum, it was, let's say, sympathetic in its engagement, uh, which, uh, you know, it, it, it is rare, I think, especially when it involves kind of diverse political perspectives. Um, I don't, I, I think the strong point in his response is that, um, across the political spectrum, um, elite formation is now 
something that we all care a lot more about. And in particular, the, the meritocracy uh, that is the ideology uh, of elite production in the United States and increasingly elsewhere needs to you know, come in for some skepticism. Um, so I think a lot of the way that people rationalize their ascendancy in society, including through going to, you know, the best law schools uh, or even law school at all is to say, I earn my spot. Uh, I get the benefits of doing so. Uh, and in fact, we, we, I think Yuval Levin is, is correct that this is an ideology that's, that is not just false because very few people actually earn their ascendancy. Um, but it's corrosive of a kind of commitment to, you know, what, what he calls the common good. Um, and it fits in with a kind of, um, what, what Christopher Lash called the revolt of the elites that I think it, it is occurring in, in both political parties. So across the American political spectrum. And so I totally agreed with his um, argument that we need to think of law schools, whether we're on the left and the right, in a way that that is much less oriented towards producing rationalizations for elite ascendancy and much more oriented towards um, kind of a, a, a broader and less self-serving set of outcomes. Next up, we speak with Yuval Levin, the editor of National Affairs, who wrote a piece in the National Review in response to Professor Moyne. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Can you briefly walk us through what you see as the main points from his piece and how you respond, why you came to respond to his article? I responded to his article because I, I thought it was an exceptionally thoughtful take on some of the challenges of meritocracy. Um, the argument is really, in a sense, about elite law schools. Um, He's a professor at Yale Law School and I think was reflecting on the experience of some of his students, especially first-year law students, who find themselves having gone to law school with the aim of playing some significant part in social change or social transformation, uh, finding themselves ensconced in an elite institution that is training them to be part of the elite of American life and wondering if this is really actually going to be a way to uh, change society or advance some idea of justice that they came in with. In some respects, Moyne uh, advances a notion of what the law is for and what law schools are for that I have a lot of trouble with, that I think is a, a, a political idea, a progressive idea of what uh, elite lawyers might do. But in another sense, I, I thought that he articulated a, an idea of the law school as an educational institution that is very attractive, and more than that, spoke to the incredibly complicated challenge of meritocracy and of uh, elitism in a democratic society that I think is a problem that really runs to the core of a lot of what we're facing in American political life now, and so brought to the surface a lot of questions that uh, I thought were very important to raise and to which I wanted to suggest some answers that might be a little different from his. So I responded to his piece uh, with, a, with a little posted National Review that tried to suggest that I think he's exactly right to wonder what the law schools are for and that maybe the answer is that the law schools are for training lawyers and that the law as a profession 
with its with its institutional characteristics as a profession might be one way to close the gap between uh, elites and the rest of the public and therefore also between the idea that very well-meaning elites in our society have about how they could help the country and the actual capacities put at their disposal by uh, the institutions that serve them. How much do you see Moyne's piece as a reaction to kind of the Trump presidency and anti-elitist rhetoric that is sweeping both the right and the left? And Moyne calls this meritocracy as a rationalization for unprecedented elite ascendancy. Do you really see this as unprecedented elite ascendancy? Well, you know, it's distinct in some particular ways. I mean, I, I think I think Moyne's piece uh, is of the Trump era in a few ways. Uh, first of all, it's certainly a response in part to the simple fact that the character of the American judiciary is changing. And part of what Moyne is criticizing is, is an approach in the elite law schools that has tended to elevate the judge as a kind of deliverer of society and to hold up the judge before progressive law students as uh, a model of how to change society so that the law schools have tended to idolize senior judges um, and to teach students how to think about American life from the point of view of a judge. Uh, he argues that, in fact, people have to think about how to change American life from the point of view of the citizen and the point of view of the legislator, the point of view of uh, of, of the minority or the majority, the point of view of the people who experience the problems they're trying to address. I think it's a very important point, and it's, of course, an argument against elitism. Uh, it's also of the Trump era in the sense that it's very aware of the tensions around elite institutions and the meritocracy. And I think part of what he wants to suggest is that um, the, the, we are living in a time when we have a very unusual kind of concentration of elite power or elite privilege. Um, I, I don't think it's fair to say that this is uh, unprecedented, though its character is different. America's always had an elite. Uh, every society has an elite, at least in the limited sense that uh, you know, elite is a, is, is a kind of um, tautology, right? In every society, some people will rise and other people won't, and the people who rise are its elite. The question is, how do they rise? Why? Uh, on what basis do they have special privileges or advantages? Um, for a long time in America, our elites were largely uh, an inherited elite, a kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, Northeastern elite. And um, that elite achieved many things, but it also was exceptionally closed, at least for our democratic society. It was hard to get into it. And starting around the middle of the 20th century, that elite itself became uncomfortable with the degree to which it was uh, it was narrow and began to open up its institutions some, uh, starting with higher education. And the elite we have now is a product of that more open path into the top tiers of American life. And it's opened up by what we think of as various kinds of meritocratic instruments, especially college admissions, standardized testing, ways of selecting for skill or for intelligence or for whatever it is we tell ourselves these tests measure. And that elite um, is unusual in some important ways for American life. Um, 
it's 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 broader in terms of um, of of race somewhat, though it's still pretty narrow in terms of race. It's broader in terms of ethnicity, religion. Uh, there are certainly more women in American elite institutions um, than there would have been before. But um, all these people are there because they've passed the same tests, and so this is still certainly a narrow elite. And I think most important, it's an elite that's there as a result of having proven something on a test, and so. It has a greater sense of of being worthy of the advantages and privileges that it has, and so oddly, uh, I think that it is a less restrained, a less constrained elite than even the wasps were. The wasps always had a sense that they have a privilege, and so they owe something back to the larger society, some kind of public service, some kind of reticence in public about the power or money they have. Obviously, they didn't always follow this ethic, but it existed. I think today's elite is in some important ways even less inclined to restrain itself than that elite was. And so it's obnoxious to the larger society in a pretty powerful way. What do you mean by restrain? Yeah, I, I, I basically mean restrained in the use of power. Um, there's less of a sense that um, people with privilege owe some kind of public service in return and so should serve in the military or in public institutions should find some way to serve the larger society. There's less of a sense uh, of the limits of their own knowledge and ability because again, a meritocratic elite tends to think that it's there because it has the knowledge and ability to govern society. Now, I don't want to, I, I don't want to suggest that the WASP elite of the 19th century was a model of restraint. Um, there were a lot of problems with, with American elites at any moment you might look at, but I do think that there is a distinct kind of arrogance in a meritocracy that inclines its members to escape the the restraints of institutions and so to stand out on their own in a kind of performative way that's very characteristic of 21st century life um, and basically exercise power and privilege. And they might engage in a politics that's all about opposing privilege, but at the end of the day, they're not really doing much about it. I think that's a, a way to get at the same problem that Moyne is describing, but from a different angle, from more of a, frankly, from more of a conservative angle in contemporary politics, and I am a conservative. Um, so maybe my critique of that elite is a little different from, from Moyne's, but I think we're both getting at the fact that there's a sense that the public has and that many, uh, uh, and that many people in our elite institutions have that somehow there's a disconnect between the larger society and its leaders um, that's very damaging, very harmful. It makes it hard to know how to do good in American life today. So I think what you're saying might have been more controversial before the college admission scandal. Do you think the college admission scandal, do you think that's kind of emblematic of what you're talking about? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, yes and no. I think that there is the, the, there are two ways to to make an elite more uh, m more fair um, and legitimate. One is to open up access to that elite more broadly, so that more people have a chance to enter it, and therefore it's less narrow and maybe more representative. Um, that's the way in which our country addressed the narrowness of the WASP elite starting in the middle of the 20th century. The other is to restrain the ways in which the elites use power. And for that, I think we require a sort of institutions that require people within them to take a certain shape in society, to take a certain form and play a certain role, 
um, and let the institutions, whether that's their professions, the, the place they work, their community, their family, uh, their church or others, um, give shape to the role they play in society. I think that the college admission scandal is about the first. It's about how people enter the elite. And higher education certainly is the path into the elite of American life. And it does seem like there are some corruptions uh, at, at that entryway. Um, and, you know, that the, the meritocracy, which depends on some test of merit um, to legitimate itself, uh, is, has become more and more of an aristocracy in a variety of ways. And, um, and, and so the ways in which it might restrain people's sense of privilege have been diminished by that. But I, I actually think that the more important and more problematic one is what we expect of people in power in our society, what we expect of people who have graduated from Yale Law School, um, where, where Moyne teaches. Uh, it, you know, in a sense, if, if the meritocracy is legitimated by how you enter it, then there are fewer restraints on what people can do with the power they gain by being members of that elite. I think what we need, in addition to that, are more assertive institutions. I think we've gone through a, a kind of transformation in our expectations of institutions in American life from thinking of them as formative, as shaping our character, creating a certain kind of person who is a lawyer or a doctor or a legislator or a teacher or a police officer, to thinking increasingly of institutions as platforms, as places for people to stand and perform and be seen. You see that all over American life. So think about politics, the, 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 the field where I work, um, it used to be that when someone was elected to Congress, they would spend a year or two becoming this human type called a member of Congress, uh, being shaped by the institution, watching it at work, and gradually becoming the type of person who can effectively work in the committee process and move legislation and be part of negotiations. Now people are elected to Congress, and their expectation is that what it's going to provide them with is a more prominent platform to get a better slot on cable television, to be seen and heard more on, 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 on social media, on talk radio if you're on the right. Um, and a lot of what new members do is come to Washington and use Congress as a platform from which to complain about Washington and about Congress. Um, the president does this too. The president uses the presidency as a stage to stand and be seen to be a kind of first and foremost commentator on our politics. So you see him on Twitter complaining about something the DOJ is doing. Well, the DOJ works for him. And if he thought about the presidency as, a, um, as an institution, then he would think about the DOJ as part of what's under his purview. But he thinks of it as a platform, and so he uses it to complain uh, and, and, and to take part in the theater of our national life. I think that institutions that are more formative are also more constraining. They, they, they force our elites to serve some purpose and so to serve the public. And so to my mind, the, the college admission scandal is a scandal at the entryway into the elite. There are also a lot of scandals happening now um, at the other end, at the place where our elites use their power. And in both cases, I think there needs to be some change. And speaking of that change, I think one change Moyne sees that there is an overemphasis in law school uh, and just in the legal profession at looking at law from the perspective of the judge to kind of the detriment of understanding what role the other two branches play in our politics. I think this is something that scholars on the right have been warning about for longer and now 
scholars on the left are getting more aware of as the judiciary tips rightward with Trump's appointments. Do you think that this general questioning of the judicial branch is a good thing and can maybe incentivize people into having better conversations and looking harder at what role civic life and how policy needs to be made more in other branches? Yeah, I do very much think it's a good thing, but I worry that it is politicized uh, in a way that uh, is becoming increasingly apparent in the Trump era. So as you say, this is something conservatives tended to complain about <clears throat> as long as the judiciary was uh, dominated by the left. And now as it's coming to be increasingly dominated by the right, you're seeing liberals complain about it. What worries me is that you're seeing conservatives complain about it less uh, as that happens. And increasingly, there is talk on the right about how to use judicial power to advance certain substantive ends. Um, and, you know, as more and more judges are products of the conservative legal culture, there's more and more talk about judicial supremacy on the right and more and more talk about judicial restraint on the left. And it makes you wonder if people really mean what they say. I think that it's very important that we have a constrained and restrained idea of what judges are for, that ultimately our system is a Republican system of government, small r. It's a system where uh, the legislature is at the center of the action. It is the first branch, uh, not by accident. And the other branches have to be responsive to legislative action. And where the role of judges is fundamentally interpretive, um, and uh, you know I, that has been, as you say, the argument that conservative judicial scholars, legal scholars, have made for a long time. I think it needs to be the argument they continue to make, even though we're on the verge now of a right-leaning judiciary, federal judiciary, really in some ways for the first time since the 1920s. Um, it's going to be a real challenge. And a real test of, uh, of of whether conservatives, in fact, believe in the premises and principles they've advanced over the years uh, to see if they continue to champion them, even as judges uh, appointed by Republican presidents become the majority of the judiciary. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at Ushai Elrev. You can find more episodes of Briefly at Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.